And let's stand as we read. We'll start right at the end of verse 16. Abraham, who is the father of us all? Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope, against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Father, we pray for your help. We pray you'd save your people for your namesake and your glory this day. Lord, fulfill your good promises in us. We pray that you would save us, conform us to the image of Christ, keep us from evil, keep us from falling, keep us from dishonoring you, and cause us to press on and become more and more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, we return again this morning to this very profound and wonderful fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. It's been hard to get uh, much momentum up because we've had uh, special speakers coming in and it's like every other week we're doing something different, but we come back again um, to this fourth chapter. Let me just begin by asking you a question, and that is, what is the theme of the fourth chapter of Romans? What is the theme? All right, salvation by faith. Let's make it just a little more specific. Justification by faith. That's what Paul ended off talking about in chapter 3, and now he's going to expand that and develop it throughout chapter 4. Justification by faith. And, uh, and another question, who is the main character in this chapter? Abraham and uh, Paul spends a lot of time considering Abraham, concentrates on him, because there is so much to be learned from the case of Abraham concerning justification by faith. God set him up as the exemplar or the pattern. He's the father of the faithful, and uh, there's so much to be learned about justification by faith through the case of Abraham. So uh, Paul, by inspiration realizes this. He takes a totally different position than the Jews did on Abraham. Uh, The Jews uh, uh, looked at Abraham as one who was justified by by his own goodness, by works. And Paul says, no, not at all. Just the opposite. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So uh, he centers his attention on Abraham and uh, We began last time then to look at verses 17 to 22, and we saw that in these verses, uh, Paul's subject is still justification by faith. That's still the thing that he's talking about, Uh, but now he centers his attention on the faith part of it. Uh, 
Justification by faith, well, what is faith? What is, what's the nature of faith? <clears throat> what kind of faith? What are the characteristics of true biblical faith? Uh, we saw last time that not all faith is the real thing. There's such a thing as a temporary faith. They believe for a while and then fall away. There's such a thing as a superficial faith that doesn't really get down into the heart. There's such a thing as a bare mental assent. Even the demons believe and tremble. So the question is, is what's the characteristic of real faith, of justifying faith, of biblical faith? And Paul says, well, we can answer that by looking at the faith of Abraham. We know that the kind of faith Abraham had was the real kind. We're certain of that. And Christians are those who have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. They are of, verse 16, they are of the faith of Abraham. So every Christian is of the faith of Abraham. And every Christian, verse 12, follows in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. So if you want to know what are the characteristics of true biblical faith, go back and look at Abraham and look at the characteristics of his faith. And so that's what we started to do last time. What are the characteristics of biblical faith? Well, we looked at three of these last time. First of all, true saving faith believes in God. It believes God. Abraham believed God. Uh, John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't say he who hears my word and believes in me, although that's true, but it's bigger than that. Because whenever you really, truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're accepting a total worldview having to do with an infinite personal God and the fact that you're a sinner and the fact that Christ is your Savior. <clears throat> a new Christian may not un understand very much, but one thing he knows is he's come into contact with the one true God. He hasn't just accepted some little God amongst many gods. He's accepted the one true God that rules out all other gods. You see, that's what we're talking about. Uh, there are many that are willing to, quote, believe on Jesus. Uh, many Hindus would be glad to say, well, I'll believe on Jesus. Of course, I'll accept Jesus. Just add him in with all the other gods, you see. But that's not what it is. It's a bigger thing to accept Jesus, to believe on Jesus. It involves an entire package. A lot of people, even in America, have accepted Jesus, but it's a little Jesus. It's not the one true God. It's not the entire package of what's involved in believing on God. And so uh, that's the first characteristic of biblical faith is that it believes the infinite personal God. And then secondly, we saw that saving faith believes very specifically the promises of God. Uh, you don't just believe God in some vague way, but you believe specifically the things that God has said. Every true Christian has followed uh, the faith of his father Abraham in this regard, that he has believed specific things that God has said to the point of staking his whole life and future and soul on the truthfulness of what God has said. That's how serious it is. Um, the true Christian is one who believes the promises of God so much that in many cases he's lost his job or he's lost his wife or he's lost his uh, opportunity to be advanced or he's lost his diploma or whatever because he believes the promises of God that much. And so this is something, isn't it? This is a characteristic of saving faith, of biblical faith. It it is convinced of the promises of God and the veracity of God to the point that that cost many times cost everything. And so um, the Christian is one who trusts the promises of God, but not only for salvation, but he lives uh, a life of learning more and more to trust the promises of God in every area. 
And so in general you can say the Christian is one who believes the promises of God. And then the third characteristic that we saw, true faith believes God specifically as the one who raises the dead and calls those things which do not exist as existing. Now, we saw this in verse 17. Uh, God, uh, Paul, uh, or Abraham believed God, uh, even God who gives life to the dead and calls the things which do not exist as existing. This was a major element in Abraham's faith. And... Uh, I want us to spend just a little bit more time on it today. First of all, concerning God as the one who raises the dead, uh, Abraham believed God with regard to his own body, and uh, we saw that in verse 19. Here he was almost 100 years old. He believed God with regard to Sarah's body. Here she was 90 years old, and before that she had been barren, all of her lifetime and hadn't been able to have children even when she was young. And then we saw in Hebrews 11 that he also believed God with respect to the resurrection of Isaac's body when he went up on the mountain. So here's Abraham believed God for the resurrection of three people. That's amazing, isn't it? That's that's how central this was in uh, his faith. But we saw last time that all that relates directly to us because every Christian believes God as the one who raises the dead. And uh, we see that right here in verse 23 and 24. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So we believe in God as the one who raises the dead. Uh, This is absolutely essential and central to being a Christian. In fact, Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, how could anything be any simpler than this? What have I got to do to be saved? Just confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. You shall be saved. Now, doesn't that sound absolutely... I mean, there's nothing to do to become a Christian. Just confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. Trouble is, you can't do that yourself. The natural man cannot say... No man can say that Jesus is Lord. You see, it's supernatural. Um, believing the God who raises the dead. Now, every Christian knows and believes in his heart that God raised Christ from the dead. That's part of what it is to be a Christian. But not only that, we're called upon to believe God is the one who raises the dead throughout our Christian lives. And I want to look a little bit at that today. First of all... uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Not just for Christ's resurrection, but for His resurrection power in our lives. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see, Paul's got that same kind of faith for himself in his Christian life. That we should trust in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So Paul was put in a situation where he was despairing of life so that he might trust in the God who raises the dead. And beloved, what's he saying here? He's saying that as Christians, God is going to shut us up to situations where we have to put our trust in the God who raises the dead. Isn't that something? 
it sounds like with Paul, it was it was both physically and spiritually. He was pressed beyond limit. And God allowed that so that he might not trust in himself, but in the God who raises the dead. Now, I think of this, uh, well, you can think of different things from church history. Physically, John Knox, they said they had to carry him to the pulpit. But by the end of the sermon, the fellow said he was like to ding the pulpit to blads. That means just beat the pulpit to pieces. Now, what happened there? He, had, he was getting life from God, even physically, getting life from God. Um, I remember Brother Merle giving a testimony one time that he had been pressed very uh, heavily, uh, not through neglect on his own part, but just through God, uh, ordering things in such a way that he was just exhausted and he had to, and he had to press on. And the verse came to his mind, if he that raised Christ from the dead, if the spirit of him that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will also quicken your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. And he prayed that prayer, asked God to quicken his mortal body, and he said he was completely refreshed. Just a supernatural thing, an influx of life. Uh, Spiritually speaking, I remember with Bill McLeod, when he was coming up here the time that he spoke here, uh, he said to, I think it was Jim Kelly and I that went and got him, he said, you know, I'm nothing but a dead stick on the shore. Well, he sure didn't seem like a dead stick on the shore. What was it? There was an influx of life coming in, supernatural life coming in. Let me give another one. This is what Paul says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the same idea, resurrection, life. I remember uh, Francis Schaeffer saying uh, that he sometimes he got so weary of going into those college situ- situations and arguing with unbelievers and trying to talk with them, that he'd say, I'm so weary, I can't go up the hill one more time, is the way he said it. I can't go up the hill one more time. Well, what do you do then? You cry out to the God who raises the, raises the dead. We need supernatural help. And uh, I, I really uh, I feel like I don't know much about this and not even worthy to talk on it. But we've got to at least look at this and say, wait a minute. This is for us. God is encouraging me that He raises the dead. I mean, if we knew that God was a God that really strengthened people, that'd be great in itself. But God is a God who raises dead people. And Paul says, that's what, the the Apostle Paul says, that's what I'm banking on in my life. I'm banking on the fact that God raises the dead. That's what I'm living on, the resurrection power, the power, that very power that raised Christ from the dead, you see. He keeps talking about how that's working in us. You see the point? That's the same thing that he's talking about. So as Christians, we believe in God who raises the dead, and that, and every Christian's clear on it in the matter of Christ's resurrection. But it begins to spill over in your own life. You begin to realize, now God raises the dead, not just certain, not just one dead person, but He raised Abraham, and He raised Sarah, and He, and he raised Isaac in a figure, and He'll raise me in situations where I desperately need Him to help me. Again, the same faith in God who raises the dead, that's the same kind of faith we have to exercise every time we're praying for a lost loved one. It's that it seems hopeless that they'll ever be saved. It is hopeless because they're dead. They're dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who's rich in mercy even when we were dead, 
in trespasses and sins, raised us up together with Christ. And so, uh, now think of, think of, I mean, just this, and here's a person becomes a Christian, their faith may look so weak, and it is weak, but if it's got this element of God working in it, and it's a faith that believes God and believes the promises of God and believes God as the one who raises the dead. It's all wrapped up in that first faith that, the, that, a, that a true Christian has, no matter how weak they may be, that's in there. That quality, the same quality of what Abraham had is in every true Christian. Well, also, Abraham believed God as the one who calls those things, back to Romans 4, he calls those things which do not exist as existing. <clears throat> now, I want to say a little bit more on this too before we go on. Um, verse 17, and notice this, the, it doesn't say what the translations usually say. Uh, the New American Standard says, calls into being that which does not exist. So the emphasis is on this thing that's been called into being, but that's not the way it's worded. It's the opposite of that. I think the King James says, calls those things which are not as though they were. Calleth those things which be not as though they were. Something is that, that's pretty close anyway. So anyway, the, but the emphasis here is, well, that's pretty. That's pretty good. If Dave read that, have you got the King James there? Calleth, calleth those things which be not as though they were. Okay. Well, that's that's closer than the New American Standard. It's still not quite right because it's he calls those. He doesn't say here. God calls into being things that are not. That's what the New American has. He says God calls things that are not. As being. That's what he literally says. God calls things that are not as being. As existing. Um, what does that mean? What's he talking about? Well, we looked at, at one example of it in verse 17. As it is written, A father of many nations, have I made you. Past tense. Now, he, was, he didn't have any child yet, but he says, I've made you a father of many nations. He puts it in the past tense, something that is not yet. And so by calling something that isn't yet as if it were already, he brings it into existence by doing that. So there's an element of the first part in there, but it, it follows. Let me just read a quote from John Murray. The things that are not are the things which have been determined by God to come to pass, but which have not yet been fulfilled. These things do not yet exist, but since determined by God, they are called by Him as having existence. The certainty of their futurition, that is, coming to pass, is just as secure as if they had come to pass. Now, that's what he's saying. He calls those things which be not as being, already as being. Now, uh, what that means is, is that once God has determined and promised something, even though it does not yet exist, it's just as certain as re and real as if it did already exist. And we saw this so clearly back in Genesis 17, but I did not bring out one of the most important things. So let's go back there. Genesis 17. This is amazing. Genesis 17, verse 4. Now we see this in God's giving of these names. And we looked at that a little bit last time. But there's more here. Genesis 17, verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Okay? Now God just says, now, now suppose, you know, you've gone by your present name for 99 years. You get pretty ingrained in that. That's my name. 
And God says, no, you will no longer be called that. You're going to be called this. Well, I wonder, you know, over the next few months, we'll start doing that. No, immediately, it says here, verse 9, God said further to Abraham. Now here, he was was Abram all the way up here. Notice verse 3, Abram. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him and so on. But then when you get to verse 9, God said further to Abraham. All of a sudden his name's changed. And he's called by his new name now in verse 9. But I think there's something even more amazing down here in verse 15. God said to Abraham, here he's got a new name already now. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, and then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And the name Sarah means princess. She's going to be a mother of kings. Now, again, Sarah was 90 years old, and they had known each other a long time, and he was used to calling her Sarah. But notice what happened. Verse 17, right after God has said this, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, he's already changed changed her name in his mind. Isn't that amazing? He's already calling her by what God has called her two or three sentences before. And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. Now, he's still struggling, but he is willing to at least take his stand on what God has said. He switched her name immediately. God God said from now on she's going to be called princess, and he immediately started calling her that. So it's an amazing thing. Abraham believed God as the one who calls those things which are not as existing. <clears throat> now, again, this is the same faith that every Christian walks in to some measure. Every Christian follows in the steps of the faith of their father Abraham. All saving faith believes in the God who calls things that don't exist as existing. <clears throat> we looked last time at some examples of this in the Christian life, but today I want us to just look at it a passage that brings out the general principle, and that's in Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of of things not seen. Now this is a notoriously difficult verse to translate. But this translation is probably as good as any. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now he said this is the this isn't the definition of faith, but it just tries to get a hold a little bit of what faith is. And what faith is, is that it's a conviction, part of what it is, is it's a conviction of things not seen. Now, you could say, well, that means things that are not seen right now. I mean, I can't see God, for example, but I'm convinced that God is, and that's part of what faith is. In fact, a little later down here, it says, Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen or invisible. So he saw the invisible God. So faith is a conviction of things not seen. You believe in God even though you can't see Him. We put our eyes not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are not seen. Well, that's true. But here he's talking in the context of hope. Hope has to do with the future. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that is, not yet seen. Things that are coming, but they're not yet seen. Now, let me just give you some examples down through here. Look at Noah in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. You see? Faith is the 
conviction that this thing, even though it's not yet seen, I've, God said it, so it's as certain as if I did see it, you see. He believes in God who calls those things that don't exist as existing. So Noah, warned by God about things not yet seen, believed Him and founds his life on. I mean, how many years of his life did he spend building this ark? Year after year after year working to build the ark, all based on the fact that this flood's going to come. And that's based on the fact that God said it's going to come. You see? So this is part of what faith is. This thing of believing the God who calls things that don't exist as if they already existed, it it ties right in with believing the promises and purposes of God as being certain. Let me give a couple more examples here uh, concerning... Sarah herself, verse 11, By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. She was believing something about the future. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. One more. I think this brings it out so clearly. Joseph in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now what's that about? He says, I know that one day God's going to take everybody up out of here and when you go, I want to make sure you take my bones with you. See, that's faith, because he's trusting in the God who speaks about things that don't exist yet as existing. It was that certain in his mind. It was so certain that God was going to do what he said, that he gave instructions about his bones. Now, when you go up, be sure and take my bones with you. In other words, why does Paul bring this thing up? I mean, it's clear. He brings up the fact that God is a God who raises the dead, because that's That was so clear in Abraham's life, and it's so clear in every Christian's life. But why does he bring up this thing that God calls those things which are not as already existing? Well, again, because it was so clear in Abraham's life, I mean, even his name being changed before he had any kids. But it's also so clear in the life of every Christian. Every Christian is banking everything on stuff that hasn't happened yet. I mean, everything about the Christian, many of it totally unseen. Flee from the wrath to come. Well, I don't see any wrath out there coming. We know those things because the God who cannot lie has said those things. You see, so this is, this is one of the aspects of saving faith. And what a blessed thing it is when God speaks of the future in the past tense. That's what we're talking about. He speaks of the future in the past tense. Whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Past tense. Well, I'm not glorified yet. I haven't gotten to heaven yet. But I'll tell you what, if you've been called, you've been justified. And if you've been justified, you have, God says, past tense, even though it's future. It's an amazing thing. In other words, the book's already been written. And the last chapter has been written. And it's put in the past tense. Well, that's the nature of saving faith, you see. It enters into a relationship with a big God. In fact, the infinite God. It believes God and it believes not just vaguely in God. It believes things that He has said. And not only that, it believes Him specifically as almightily powerful to raise the dead and to bring into existence things that haven't even happened yet as if they'd already happened. That's part of what saving faith is. That's what it's like. That's the quality of it. Now, let's go on then. The fourth characteristic, we're only going to look at two more, and I don't have too much to say on these, but fourth characteristic, faith believes in spite of all appearances To the contrary. Back to Romans 4 again. (coughs) 
and verse 18. In hope, against hope, he believed. Against hope. Abraham believed something that was humanly speaking against all hope. He got no encouragement whatsoever from his circumstances, but rather just the opposite. Now, it was, this was a, such an extreme case, but I think God has put it there for us to realize that this is the nature of what it is to believe Him. You believe Him in spite. Faith believes God in spite of everything going the opposite direction. That's the nature of this faith that the Christian has. Uh, <clears throat> everything around Abraham said that he and Sarah were never going to have an Isaac. Not only was he getting older every day and to where he was 100 years old, and not only was Sarah already barren and getting older every day until she was 90 years old, but on top of that, all these years had passed since God made the promise and he hadn't done one thing. You see, even that was against him. And yet, Abraham believed God. Now that's amazing. Again, I say it, it shows the supernatural nature of true faith. It's not something that we're able to create, and it's not something that we're able to sustain or do ourselves. What would cause Abraham to believe God in spite of all outward evidence to the contrary? Maybe he was just gullible, you know, he just <laughs> dumb. Believing God, I mean... Pie in the sky by and by, you know. He just believed in something, even though it's irrational. You know, he makes this leap into the dark. Is that is that what it was? Abraham was so gullible? What would cause Abraham to do this? Was he shutting his eyes to reality? No, the fact is he was doing the most rational thing he could ever do. Because you read back in Acts 7 verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And he had seen enough of God's glory to know that it was foolish and sinful and stupid not to believe God. Now that's the difference. Which is more rational, to rely on outward appearances or to rely on the promise of an omnipotent God omnipotent God who is absolutely 100% good and who cannot lie. What's, which is more rational? If, if God is 100% good and He's infinite in power and He can't lie, better trust what He says. You see? I remember when Dick was speaking on Goliath one time, David and Goliath, David is out there going up against Goliath. Well, compare, you know, compare yourself to Goliath. Start measuring, you know, measure yourself against Goliath and what the likelihood is that you're going to be able to kill Goliath. Well, that wasn't what he was doing. He was measuring Goliath, who was, you know, way up here. He was measuring him in comparison to God. (laughs) If you measure him in comparison to God, it becomes very rational to go out there and fight him. See? That was the difference. Abraham was comparing these impossibilities to God and how much power God had. People who have more faith than we do are not people who are more gullible than we are. They're people who know God better than we do. That's the reason they've got more faith than we do. And that's why a Christian is so sure about this matter of Christ being raised from the dead. I said earlier that every Christian <clears throat> knows that God, that God raised Christ from the dead. If you're a Christian and tomorrow somebody came up to you and said, guess what? They found the bones of Jesus in the tomb. First thing, immediately you know that's a lie. How do you know it's a lie? Because you've seen something of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and you know that the miracle would—the the miracle was not for Jesus to rise from the dead. It was the fact that He could ever die in the first place. If you ever see what He's like, you realize that He is not still in the tomb. That's something you know because God, the Holy Spirit, has opened your eyes, you see, to see reality, to see 
the truth about Christ. So saving faith is something that is wrought in the heart as a result of the Holy Spirit giving us spiritual sight, and it's a gift of God. I remember Francis Schaeffer telling, I think it was uh, he was talking about the Hittites, I believe one of those ancient peoples. He said that in his day, uh, I think he was a new Christian at the time, if you went to the Encyclopedia Britannica and looked up Hittites, this is what it says. Now, this is, this is a pres- prestigious publication of brilliant men. I, rem- I mean, I remember when uh, I had an old set of Encyclopedia Britannica and the section on relativity was written by Einstein. So we're not talking about some little piddly thing. And you look up Hittites here, and what's it say? A mythological people mentioned only in the Bible. All right? You start thinking about that. Lord, if this whole nation existed, surely somebody would know that they existed. All of these best scholars, they don't even, they don't even, there's no trace of them in history. A mythological people mentioned only in the Bible. Well, Francis Schaeffer continued to believe God. Why? Because he knew enough about God to know that he could trust God instead of these men. And it wasn't very long after that that if you went to the Encyclopedia Britannica, you could find pages with colored pictures and all kinds of stuff related to these people that they had now discovered. So they're no longer a mythological people. You see, well, what is that? Faith believes against the outward appearances because faith can see something besides the outward appearances. It can see a reality beyond that, just like uh, the situation there with uh, Elisha where they're surrounded by all these armies and he's not scared. Why? Because he can see something else there too. And he prays for his servant, Lord, open his eyes so he can see this. I had a quote from Mueller that uh, I tried and tried to find. I couldn't find it, but uh, it it's one that has stuck in my mind for years. It related to the fact he said that when he's praying about asking God to do something, he said, you don't base that at all on whether it appears probable or not. If you're looking, I know for myself, if I'm praying for somebody that's lost, for example, I kind of try to look and see if there's any little hopefulness, you know, probability. He said, that doesn't have anything to do with it at all. Probabilities don't have anything to do with it. What it has to do with is the promise and power of God, the truthfulness of God. So faith, as Wesley said, laughs at impossibilities and cries it shall be done. This is the nature of true biblical faith. Well, last thing then. Biblical faith is characterized by hope. Now, again, it's hard to get the wording of this thing in English so that we don't Take it the wrong way. In hope, against hope, he believed. Now, we've looked at the against hope, but let's center in on the other. In hope, he believed. He didn't believe in hope in the sense that he believed in his own hope. He looked at his own hope and he believed in it. But this is in hope, he believed. In other words, hope is what characterized his believing. His believing was a believing that was characterized by hope. Now, again, all true faith has this element of hope. What is hope in the biblical usage of the term? Well, we're not going to go into that very much at all because we're going to spend quite a bit of time on it, Lord willing, when we get over to to chapter 5 and uh, verse 2. But just say a little bit about hope at this point because Paul brings it up here. Uh, Hope in the Bible is not, well, I hope so. You know, I hope, I hope this will happen. No, hope in the Bible is confident expectation of something that we know is coming, but we don't have it yet. So it strengthens us. You know, hope actually, Paul says you can put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. 
Now, if it's just a little weak aisle, I hope so. You can't, you're not going to get any protection out of that. But when you have an expectation, a confident expectation of what's coming, now the illustration that Lord willing will again we'll look at this when we get to chapter five. But to me, it's it's so perfect. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager and before, I used to haul hay for my dad and I can remember even when I was really young I'd drive the tractor and he'd give me a little bit of money but at the end of the day I can remember so much the feeling at the end of the day when all the hay's in the barn and everybody's cleaning up and you know it's all dark and you wash that hay off of your arms and everything and you you know you can just feel it starting to build in the air you can just picture those crisp $20 bills that were going to some of the guys or $5 bill or whatever you could picture that in your mind because you had you knew that that was coming and while I, while you're going through the day you're working in hope Paul talks about that he says the plowman ought to plow in hope well what's it mean plow in hope he realizes that there's a reward coming you see so you labor throughout the heat of the day knowing that at the end of the day, there's something coming. Now, that's the characteristic of biblical hope. That is, we believe God to the extent that there's a glimpse of reality of what's coming. It's not just some... And, you know, much of what we have is we have so little hope because there's so little reality to our faith. You get a taste of heaven. And sometimes I think that Probably a, a lot of the problem is is we live in such a soft society. You know, a lot of the slaves they had more reality of the hope than their than their white owners did anywhere because they're ta- constantly talking about the the glory that's coming. You know, the reality of it the, because it was there. They had nothing in this life. They're looking for that blessed hope, and it was real to them. <clears throat> not I hope so but a confident expectation of what is coming lost men Paul says are without God and without hope if you're without God think of Abraham if he'd been without God he would have been without hope everything was against hope but he wasn't without God and so he had hope Christians rejoice in hope of the glory of God. They look forward with confident expectation to the fulfillment of what God has promised. Paul says, don't sorrow like those who have no hope. Just to mention this, that many times in the New Testament, faith and hope are tied right together. Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Well, let's close with that psalm. Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. For the help of His presence. Hope in God. There's a, a motto that the China Inland Mission had above their archway, which uh, is taken from the words of the Lord Have faith in God. Well, right along with that, hope in God. They go right hand in hand. Well, let's pray. Lord, it is amazing to see uh, how radical this thing of true faith is. How that uh, You would work in our hearts in such a way that we could like Moses did, by faith we could endure as seen 
Him who is unseen and invisible. And by faith, we can see reality as it is and uh, see that the only rational thing to do is to trust and follow You in spite of all appearances. And Lord, we thank You for using such extreme examples in the life of Abraham just to bring out clearly to us the nature of true faith. And um, we thank You that in the heart of every Christian You have put um, a reality that will cause them to do things that seem absurd in the eyes of the world. That would cause them to leave their homes and go to some jungle or uh, to take a stand for Christ and lose their job or sometimes even their wives and families. All because of uh, being able to see reality as it is. And um, Lord, we think of the faith of Abraham, how Abraham believed God, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and Abraham believed God, not only believed in some vague way, but believed specific promises, and promises that caused him to have to believe that you would raise the dead, and uh, promises that caused him to believe that with you, uh, things that you say now are as good as done, even even when they're still in the future. Uh, Lord, uh, that the nature of this faith would cause him to go against all appearances to the contrary and not even look at those things in terms of impossibility, but in terms of God. And Lord, uh, that this faith would cause him and would cause us to be filled with confident expectation. Lord, we think of how many Christians have died uh, rejoicing. Uh, I think of uh, of that one Puritan who who wrote, I, I've now come to the end of my life uh, in his will, and then he no, no, scratch that out, I've now come to the beginning of my life. And uh, Lord, uh, uh, we think of just the, the reality of uh, the hope that's put in the heart of every Christian. We we pray You'd help us to hope in You, to look with expectation for what You'll do. Thank You for these teachings from Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, let's continue our fellowship.